Welcome to the Listening Party podcast with Pacific Opera. My name is Rebecca Haas, and I'm the Director of Community Engagement for the Opera Company. Over the years, I've had many wonderful evenings with friends at my house. These always involve food, laughter, sometimes games, and of course, music. If you have a bunch of music lovers in your house, inevitably these events turn into listening parties. When you love music, you want to share that with others. You start by choosing the music that will accompany dinner, but once we move into dessert and conversation in the living room, your friends will start to look through your record collection or your CD collection, and we start to play our favorites. And these always come with stories. Sometimes it's about the time in your life when you bought that album. Sometimes it's because you heard that artist live. And when you're passionate about music, you love to share these stories about the pieces that mean something to you. It's one of the ways I think we connect, is by sharing the stories about the music we love. The listening party is a time to share our life's stories. When I share the music that matters to me with you, I'm telling you something about who I am. This podcast is devoted to stories about the music that we love. Once you listen to the podcast, I invite you to click on the link and listen to the Listening Party playlist, which is curated and stored for on-demand listening at Spotify, an online music provider. You can listen for free anytime you like and hear the recordings of the artists and the music that are featured in each week's episode. Starting today, new episodes will be available every Friday. My guests will tell their favorite stories about music and performances that deeply impacted them, and I'll be sharing them with you. Over the weeks to come, you'll hear from members of the Pacific Opera creative team. I'm going to talk to guest singers, designers, directors, and some of our orchestra members, and of course, our patrons and fans. In this time, while we are being physically distanced and unable to gather as communities, we don't have to be socially distant. We need music and community more than ever. So let's begin. Today's storytellers are founder of Pacific Opera and artistic director Timothy Vernon, associate conductor Giuseppe Pietroroia, known as Joey, and Robert Holliston, our curator of public engagement and the regular host of Inside Opera and our lobby talks during the regular season. A quick note before I start to share the audio with you from all these wonderful people I spoke to. Due to social distancing advice from our health officials, all three guests spoke to me via Zoom, which is an online video chat service. Depending on internet connections, the sound quality varies greatly. Thank you for your forbearance with our current COVID-19 technical challenges. I promise you, this will get better. I asked Robert to share stories of memorable performances that have impacted him, and the first one that came to mind brings forth a larger-than-life character in the Canadian opera world, John Vickers. Back in 1983, I went down to Seattle from my home in Vancouver, which is where I was living at that point and going to UBC. And I went uh, with a good friend of mine, Christina Burridge. Christina and I decided we'd go and see Peter Grimes at Seattle Opera because it starred the great John Vickers. But really, our main reason was going to see Peter Grimes. In 1983, it was not that frequently performed. Neither is it in 2020, to be honest. Uh, and rumors reached us that Vickers had canceled because of illness. 
So we thought, well, should we go? Should we stay? And then we thought, we don't get an opportunity to see this piece and we both loved it. So we thought we drove down and the rumors were completely false. Vickers was, was there and sang the role. And this is one of the great operatic evenings of my entire life. I wish I could say that it was an absolutely outstanding production in every way. It was not. Um, and in 1983, we didn't have surtitles as universally as we do now. And so we relied on the diction of the singers. Uh, and I will say Teresa Kubiak's was pretty good. Um, I can't say anything about the rest of the cast. They might as well have been singing in any number of Central European languages I don't know. But Vickers was above reproach. It was an incredible performance, of course. Uh, and the outstanding thing we think of when we think of Vickers is the sheer power of his physical presence, um, his larger-than-life persona, his rather terrifying uh, personality and demeanor, and, of course, the incredible strength of his voice, which made him such a great Floristan and such a great Tristan. Um, but I'm going to tell you that what I remember is how intimate his portrayal was. It was not really uh, a multifaceted psychological study, the way Sir Peter Piers was said to have been, but Vickers could just convey to the audience everything we needed to know about his character and his interpretation of Peter Grimes. And at one point, he basically sat in the middle of the stage in the Seattle Opera House, and it felt like he was just speaking to us in an intimate way, in a conversational way, uh, even though, of course, he was singing each note beautifully. And the voice itself uh, had many more colors than I think uh, re recordings really transmitted to us. Um, so that was uh, the outstanding thing about the evening in terms of the performances. The orchestra, as I recall, again, played this core very well. But the most outstanding thing I always remember about that evening is that it was my first time seeing a large-scale Britain opera. I'd worked on Albert Herring at UBC as, uh, as a student TA in the opera workshop. And that was wonderful. And I, I always will love the, the smaller-scale chamber operas of Britain. But to see Peter Grimes with that leading actor um, at that time of my life, uh, that will always be an astounding memory. One of the great experiences of my life has been to go to hear singers like Ali Ameling and um, Frederica Vachtada in recital with pianists like Martin Katz and Rudolf Janssen. So those have been high points and there are many more of them, but there was one that made me literally walk six blocks in the wrong direction afterwards. And it is not a singer with a classically uh, beautiful voice, a bel canto voice, but one of the most intense and intelligent performances I've ever heard. This was in London at the Wigmore Hall. Uh, some few days after the same pair had done the performance at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. This is the tenor Mark Padmore and the great pianist Paul Lewis, who was known for his solo recordings of Beethoven and Schubert. And the program, in fact, was Beethoven's cycle Antifernica Liebte and the collection Schwanengesang of Schubert. And just the intensity with which, and the simplicity of movement with which uh, both performers, but particularly Mark Padmore, who is, let's face it, responsible for the delivery of words, they held us all in the Wigmore Hall absolutely enraptured glued to every single syllable of that incredible text. And it was absolutely riveting. And you know, as I said, Mark Padmore is not celebrated for having a Fritz Wunderlich-like beauty to the voice, but he had an infinite variety of colors. And uh, again, as many different ways of pronouncing consonants as there were consonants in the alphabet, and as many different ways of pronouncing each one as there were contexts in the, in the program. 
So that was literally, I walked out of Wigmore Hall and I've been there many times and I walked completely in the wrong direction uh, and stumbled around for a while trying to get my footing again. And I like those kinds of experiences in the concert hall, in the opera house and in the theater. September of 1990, late September, early October, found several of us going to Vancouver to see a production given by Vancouver New Music of Claude Vivier's opera Copernicus. Now I went actually to see this um, because I had played one song by Claude Vivier and heard one piano piece and I was incredibly uh, interested in his music. Uh, 1990 would have been only some six or seven years after his horrible murder in Paris. Uh, so Vivier was a more recent memory to Canadian music lovers. Two good friends of mine were in the cast, a mezzo-soprano named Fides Kruker, who sang a lot of, of modern music, and also our local heroine of modern music, uh, Kathy Fern Lewis, Catherine Lewis. And I'd worked a lot with both of those people and was very, very uh, much looking forward to hearing them um, in, a, in this context. Also, as it turned out, the choreographer was someone I went to school with, a wonderful person named Tekla Schiphorst. The work itself was sensational. It was thought-provoking. It was sensual. It was emotionally gripping. And I will say that in an intimate environment, this was at the Vancouver East Cultural Center, to be able to have eye contact with the performers and see um, the instrumentalists who were in on the stage as part of the whole show and part of the whole drama was electrifying. And because it was a relatively small audience and almost all the people in the audience knew someone on stage, we had quite a gathering at a local Italian restaurant on Commercial Drive, I remember. And that was the first time in my life I've ever had Sambuca with a coffee bean in it lit on fire. I recommend it as a post-VVA experience. Robert is such a wonderful storyteller. And I have to say that Vivier story, it makes me wonder, maybe that's a good thing for me to do while I'm home isolated. What is my post-show drink for Tosca as compared to Die Valkyrie? Hmm, something to think about. How does a jazz saxophonist end up as an opera and orchestral conductor? Well, while his friends were lining up for Corey Hart tickets at the Montreal Forum, Joey found he was being called to something else. So back in, I'm, I can't, oh God, I'm going to say it was mid, early 80s, because I was in high school, I think. It may have been 83, my last year, 82, 83. It was their 50th anniversary. And as part of their 50th anniversary, they offered a free concert uh, at the old Montreal Forum. And you had to get your tickets at the Montreal Forum. This was before any, you know, you couldn't just like download something and go... The city of Montreal was sponsoring and everybody was in on it because it was a big anniversary and they were giving away two free tickets per person. So you had a limit of two free. You couldn't hoard it. Uh, so you had two free tickets and you had to go to the forum. And I remember I was a teenager and I don't know if I had been downtown on my own yet, you know, take a subway, take a thing. I had gone with friends and I go, but I wanted to go to this concert and I went to the Montreal Forum, got out of the, the Atwater Metro Station and was right on the corner of Atwater and St. Catherine at the old forum. Is that, and I remember there being a lineup and it went around, like it was almost the whole block around. And I got in line and there were people of all ages. And I think in, the people in front of me were, were what I would have considered older. And now they're probably my age now. Maybe they were in their fifties, I don't know. And there was a gentleman, I remember him being very jovial and joked with people around. And what I found fascinating was that 
it was not like being there for tickets for a rock concert or anything. They were all, it was, it, I just remember it being so civilized and, and organized. Everybody kind of just walked very quietly. Nobody pushed. And we got to the ticket counter and you got your two free tickets and that was it. Uh, what I remember about that concert is that then I, I, I did get two tickets. I was trying to get someone to go with me, but I couldn't find someone who wanted to go. And, and I thought, okay, I knew of them. They, they, in the early 80s is when they started making a name for themselves and Charlie Dutrois and all the recordings, right? So I knew they, they were really starting to be synonymous with Montreal. And there were ads on TV for the Montreal Symphony. It was just a big, a big thing. Uh, they were doing uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I thought, oh, I really want to go see that. In the big Montreal Forum, I don't even think I, well, maybe I had gone to a hockey game earlier, like when I was younger, but I was sitting in the Montreal Forum and I was sort of like, if you're, if you are into hockey, I was probably sitting at the red line uh, and the concert was in sort of one of the net areas, right? So, so I was halfway on the side looking towards the net kind of thing. And that's where the set, stage was set. And Zarin Mehta, who was, Zubin Mehta's brother, and Zarin Mehta was the general manager of the OSM at the time. He came out and made a speech and he said, you know, wanted to thank everybody for being there and whether you're a longtime uh, uh, supporter, whether you're new to the, um, new to the, um, to the MSO or whether you're, you know, a conservatory student or a music student who just, you know, coming to your first, and I thought, oh, that's me, because <laughs> I was in high school and I was, you know, um, and then the concert started and, oh yes, they played Egmont Overture. They played the Egmont Overture. And I, again, it wasn't one that I knew that well, but that really, uh, that performance, I thought, oh wow, that's a great overture. I knew that I loved classical music at that point. I think when I started, I wanted to be a jazz musician. I started on saxophone and, uh, and I loved saxophone, I loved jazz. And then I started taking lessons with a teacher at McGill who was going to get, you know, prepare me for the, and that's when I got into, started learning all the, classical side of saxophone classical in in uh, in uh, air quotes that's what i want to say air quotes so i i was now getting into orchestral music and 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 symphonic music and i really enjoyed it seeing them play and i thought it was fabulous you know the year was 8990 it was my first year as a grad student at mcgill and i just started i was doing a double major sort of saxophone and uh, continuing my saxophone studies and then started my conducting studies with Timothy. And that year they were planning a big um, performance in the spring. And I remember Timothy telling me this um, the previous spring when he said what they were doing next year. And he kind of just whispered in my ear and he said, Mahler too, with this sort of like whisper, like he was telling me this big secret. And I went, oh, and I realized I don't really know Mahler. <laughs> but it sounds fantastic just from the way he said it. So that year we were doing Mahler's Second Symphony as the final concert of the year for the orchestra. So we had a whole year together and I had been taking lessons and doing stuff. And, and then um, he decided, I think it was in January, that he would probably need some somebody to conduct the offstage brass sections but in the big sort of finale. And there were two... Uh, grad students. I was one of them. And so uh, the two of us were designated to conduct offstage. The brass chorus is offstage. I was designated with one, and it's the sort of the march where the there's trumpets and and it's it's a great moment in the in the final scene, and it's supposed to be you know the call from. 
from the beyond, from the final sort of the final trumpet, the last trumpet. And so we were doing this uh, in rehearsal and I thought, oh, this is great. This is going to be so much fun. And I get to conduct something and, you know, and, and with the orchestra and that's, you know, it's backstage. And it, it, I remember feeling really excited about, about doing it. When it finally happened, and it's one of those things where you can't plan it. When it happens, it's it's probably what you would have imagined. And I'm assuming it's probably what Timothy imagined, maybe even more. And it brought the whole school together. Everybody who was in the chorus, university chorus, the, the, the chamber singers, they all came together. Teachers sang in the chorus. Everybody wanted to be part of it. And at first, I think, you know how students, if you're a pianist, or if you were um, if you were a non-singer or or and didn't play an orchestral instrument or a band instrument, you were put in chorus, university chorus as your ensemble. And I'm sure a lot of people thought, oh, you know, another concert. Oh, we're doing this smaller, you know. And uh, and I I remember there were a few friends of mine who were in the chorus and said, oh yeah, Mahler, sure, we're doing it. And Ewan Edwards was actually preparing the chorus at the time, and he was the great you know OSM um, chorus master, and he had a great sort of way of of getting these kids excited about singing in the chorus. After the first rehearsal, I think everybody was galvanized. Everybody that I, I said, oh my God, we just had our first choral rehearsal for that PO. It's going to be great. And, and it just built that way. And it became this event. I remember being backstage and waiting for the moment in the last, in the last movement and just, you know, with great anticipation. And just as it, as you're waiting, you know, it's coming and the last movement has started and you're thinking, okay, and we all get into position. And especially at the church when it was our first time. We didn't know what the reaction was going to be. We didn't know how it was going to all, but we were all back there having a great time. And then when it came to the moment, we all focused and we knew we were being, we were part of something really great that was happening. And uh, it was lovely. It was really lovely and, and moving for everybody, uh, everybody who was there. Yeah. The, it was just, it was a, it was a, it was a special moment. And I think um, we all, Everybody who was there at the time still remembers that, that performance. Before I could let Joey go, I had to ask for a more fulsome vocal selection. And I think this will make many of you very happy. Here's Joey. My all-time favorite, um, well, I'm my all-time favorite tenor in many ways who really can... Um, stir my emotions is Pavarotti and uh, a lot of his early recordings a lot of the the bel canto recordings that he does oh the ate Okara from um, puritani the opening of that like goosebumps all the time joey and i had quite a wonderful discussion about Pavarotti having both seen him live in concert i'd seen him when he was quite a bit younger than when joey had a chance to see him and my story is that I actually got to hear Pavarotti when I was in San Francisco working with San Francisco Opera. And he was singing at one of those massive Colosseum places, but we had pretty good seats that were donated by a patron. And what really stands out in my mind is that he seemed to do nothing. He stood there and took breaths and nothing on his body would move. And he would sing up and down his register with no physical strain. And yet he seemed to have a microphone planted inside his body. It was the most amazing thing to see and to hear live. Anyway, before you rush off to hear that cut on our playlist on Spotify, please wait because I have saved one of the best stories for last. When did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? My mom says it was when I was in grade six and she took me to a performance of Anne of Green Gables by the local high school. 
We were living near Orillia, Ontario, and it has a beautiful old opera house, vaudeville era. I can remember sitting in the house, and I remember looking at the stage and yearning to be the person singing on that stage in front of those footlights. My mom said I didn't stop talking about it all the way home, that one day I wanted that to be me. Of course, at that time, I remember having no idea how to make that happen. While my moment of truth was in a small theater in Aurelia in grade six, Timothy Vernon started even earlier. I joined the, the extensive and active and competitive boys' choir of Christchurch Anglican Cathedral in Victoria when I was six and rose in the ranks and wound up at age 11 being Dux de Cani, which is a sort of head position within the choir, a soloist and a very swelled headed young treble. So my parents who loved music and my mother especially was devoted to Mozart and opera and so was I. I mean, it, this was at a period in my life when there was only Mozart and Bach, whereby anyone like Haydn was pathetic because so near and yet so far and uh, you know, Handel so simple by comparison. Anyway, <laughs> so off I go, my parents took me to Vancouver to see Don Giovanni. And this was the first incarnation of the Vancouver International Festival, the year is 1958. And it was an historic event in the history of opera in North America. Why? Because it marked the North American debut of Joan Sutherland. She who would go on to get a 20 minute ovation at, in Paris at the opera after Lucia. I mean, can you imagine a 20 minute ovation? There are whole operas that are shorter than that. Anyway, there she was part of the cast. And of course it was a name. I, I was 11 and she wasn't too present on the, on the North American scene. So I was delighted. But what did attract me was a name that was big in our household because I think my mother had a crush on them and that was George London who of course was also a Canadian and uh, for about three minutes before he left for the States but we like to claim him and then no lesser luminaries really the whole cast was extraordinary so for example the Ottavio was Leopold Simono and you would expect the Cernina to be none other than Pierre at Allery, and you are right. So they were both in the cast, and I didn't know at age 11 that I was going to go on to work with them both quite extensively, and even more so with the Mazetto, who was Bernard Turgeon. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a real assemblage of Canadian luminaries, I must say. And I was absolutely thrilled to be there, thrilled to hear this music that I loved so deeply. Uh, thrilled to see such a cast. And of course, I couldn't put any framework around it because I think this was maybe the second time I'd seen a live opera. So it, it, it struck home. And I was also busy in my, you know, swelled headed treble way, busy reading a lot of stuff. So I was reading all the Mozart biographies. I even went on a CBC television program called Live a Borrowed Life, where you had a contestant who was not seen by the panel and who had to ask questions and then come up with the identity. I went on as Mozart. And it was around exactly the same age. Of course, it didn't take the panel long to figure Mozart. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. So they had to invent, they ran out of questions on air and they had to invent things. And I remember a couple of the panelists going, uh, 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 did Mozart write a requiem? Stupid stuff like this, it was really funny. Anyway, 
So there I am, and I've heard this fantastic performance, and I stayed awake throughout, my mother assures me, and it was an exciting thing. After this performance, which was thrilling, I insisted that my parents take me backstage. I sort of knew what backstage was, and I wanted to go and speak to these wonderful singers. So I think somewhat reluctantly, my parents took me backstage, and I headed straight for George London's dressing room. And I banged on the door and the door opens and George London, those of you who saw him, you'll remember how tall he was. He was, I don't know, six foot three, four, something like that. Immensely handsome in a dark Russian sort of way because he wasn't originally Russian. And he was wearing his, his costume from the stage, his white, a white tailored period costume, absolutely blinding because it was completely covered with sequins and I don't know what all, you know, rhinestones, goodness me. He was, he was astonishing and, and scary. I mean, the door opened and I kind of stepped back a foot or two, but I looked up at him and he didn't look unkindly. He smiled and the first words out of my mouth were, Mr. London, Mr. London, I sing too. Whereupon, <laughs> he laughed, of course, and stepped back from the door and said, well, then you must come in and we must talk and so and so. So I went in and he actually sat down and put me on his knee. And I was a bit of a chub, so that was something, you know. Um, <laughs> and we talked about singing. And it was hard because, I mean, I didn't have a big technical vocabulary around singing, but I knew what it felt like. And so we talked about what it felt like. And he asked me what I was singing and was astonished to learn that I actually sang the Queen of the Night in public. <laughs> But it was, it was a lovely time, and he was so kind and uh, unforgettably wonderful. But this Vancouver production was formative in many ways that I didn't understand. I didn't know I was going to go into opera. I had no idea. The fact is, this Giovanni was an, an experience that wasn't entirely musical. It wasn't entirely theatrical. It was kind of psychological. It made me understand that this was an important event. It was important enough for my parents to take me across from Victoria to Vancouver to see it. It was important enough for all these people to show up all dressed to the nines because in those days that's what happened. And important enough for major figures like George London to devote their lives to it. And those things I think stuck as much as any aspect of the performance. It just was an impressive moment. And for me, an unforgettable one. I'm not sure how long it will take me to remove the image of a very young Timothy Vernon sitting on the lap of George London. I have to confess, I also couldn't resist. You will find in the Spotify playlist a Queen of the Night. It is not Timothy or a boy soprano. It's Lucia Pop. But still, perhaps you can imagine Timothy singing it when he was a young boy. Well, that concludes our podcast for today, our very first one. I hope these stories enrich your listening and give you something more to think about when you hear all this wonderful music in this difficult, isolated time we're finding ourselves in. Join me next Friday for another edition of The Listening Party. It will be posted on our website at four o'clock. There will be new storytellers, new stories, obviously, and more music. Thank you for listening, and please... Take care of yourselves and each other. I'm Rebecca Haas for Pacific Opera Victoria. Bye for now.